Welcome to the Innovate for Impact podcast. This podcast is for leaders in the social sector like you who want to make a difference. Each episode is packed with practical ideas on how you can be more innovative and create an even bigger social impact. We share our ideas on what you can do and also speak to leaders from the sector to share best practice. So let's get into it and let's talk impact. Welcome to another episode of Innovate for Impact. I'm Dan Bentley and I'm here with Tracy Newman from Impacto Consulting and today we're joined with Daniela Greenwood. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dan. It's a joy to be here. Awesome. Hey, can you just tell everybody that's listening, uh, who are you and um, what do you do? I work in the aged care space. I've worked in heaps of roles in aged care, from being a personal carer, volunteer, lifestyle to manager to national dementia strategy manager to national strategy and innovation manager to now a consultant, I guess mainly focusing in the residential aged care space. So my real work and passion up until the last few years was implementing relational approaches into a really institutional medicalized context of residential aged care here in Australia. That was where my work was really focused. Of late though, noticing where that hit brick walls, I've gone to a human rights approach, coming up with a framework for what that looks like for older people, for older citizens, and especially in the space of institutions such as residential aged care. Yeah, cool. And I'm, I'm going to pump your tyres up a bit here because you're not going to do it yourself, but you're also a speaker who does a lot of stuff around the world, speaking on a number of the issues you just talked about before. And in that work, you're also a pretty effective activist looking at how you can sort of make this sector better and bring it towards the future that we all want to see. So Thanks, I just Dan. I yeah. Look, I'm lucky in the last few years that I've, I've kind of gone out on my own, which gives you a bit more freedom and a bit more license, I think, depending on how much you care about getting work. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of advocacy, you do need to make some real choices there about what you do and don't do. But I've been lucky enough to do a fair bit of work in Canada and uh, in the US and, of course, with different not-for-profit and for-profit here in Australia. So since going out on my own, gee, I've learned a lot. Being in different boardrooms, different executive rooms, different clinical governance meetings and to see the patterns and to see the similarities and, and, and differences between organisations is has been a really big learning curve. Yeah, and now you're out on your own, you've unleashed these uh, opinions and you've become more, I guess, more of an activist and we're going to hear about some of those today. Before you do as well, fun fact for everybody, Dan is actually one of my uh, relatives too. So we share a great-grandfather. We come from a long lineage of Dans, the whole families. <laughs> that's how we That's how, We don't have the same last name, but we have the same first name. No, but in all seriousness, we, are, we actually are related. We, we reconnected. I think we first met back in 1996 at a family reunion, and then we reconnected recently at a dear family member of ours and it's funeral unfortunately and uh spoke and said oh we're doing work sort of in the sim- similar space we should talk more and next minute here you are on the podcast so That's, it's fantastic and i'll just do a, a shout out to betty our our shared relative who was a real staunch believer in things and an amazing woman actually yeah absolutely she was so what we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about In the aged care space, where are the opportunities for innovation? You know, Dan is here as someone who 
has worked in the sector for a while and obviously we do a bit of work in this sector too and we want to sort of unpack there's so many opportunities here at the moment where are some of the sort of big opportunities where we can really make positive change for the better i think in this sector having heard the word innovation used for the last 15 years and frequently used for something that isn't actually new and frequently the first port of call that people go to is oh well let's go to ITAC the technology conference because we'll see what the latest in innovation is and to have your CEO come and say I just went to a conference now what do you think about wearable technology and I was like we can't even get sensor mats right and I listened to your previous podcasts and I've heard some just fantastic innovations in the tech space but I think if we're talking particularly residential aged care and that is my real specialty then what is desperate needed is thought innovation before any other innovations are superimposed onto that sector. And I've seen the most creative and innovative people and organisations come into the residential aged care space and they've been so successful outside of it. And they come into residential aged care and sort of bring their methods and processes with them. What they don't understand is that residential aged care is a kind of vortex. It's a medical model vortex, actually. Everything is set up under a deficit model where old age itself is seen as some kind of, I don't know, like a surprise. (laughs) You know, oh my gosh, this person got old and, and that comes with vulnerabilities. That's not what a normal human is. Let's treat it like a deficit. And it's kind of developed its own kind of quasi-clinical practices and norms and tools that make bringing innovation into the space nigh impossible. A particular organisation had the most creative and innovative CEO who came from outside the sector. And I could see as his vision and enthusiasm kind of waned over time as somebody at the meeting from a clinical background said, no, we can't do that. It's against regulation and it's clinical risk. And of course, that's the expert in the room. So the innovator goes, oh, uh, uh, okay, well, I guess I don't understand that. I guess we can't do that innovation or we have to shape it to achieve medical model outcomes. You know, that's where you get everything's a therapy. How old do you have to be before hanging out with your grandkids becomes intergenerational therapy and cooking becomes cooking therapy? It's called therapy because it's aimed at sick people. To be fair, like music therapy, I know that I'm a musician myself, so I understand the power of music, but you know, listening to the radio isn't music therapy. And I don't know at what stage in people's life people deem them to be therapeutic. So I think that there needs to be a recognition of what people are walking into. And the first port of call, you need to say, stop, what we're doing isn't working and it isn't right. Does that make sense? What we're doing to older people. With the Royal Commission, I think that we saw a lot of what we're doing isn't right and we saw the real impacts that that has on real people and their real lives and their real families. And so I think that there's many, many stories that really illustrate your point around, you know, we can't just keep doing what we're already doing and, you know, buying some technology to help us do it better. (laughs) Like let's actually rethink what we're doing and let's totally transform the way that we see older people. And, you know, when you actually sit down and speak to older people about how they feel about getting older and and it's almost like they, they feel like they have to be so tough just to stop people from overriding them. At the time, Dan and I were quite concerned because you sort of go, well, that's me and that's not a future I'm inspired to live into. And, you know, that's my mum 
and that's my other relatives and that's not a future that I want for them right now. And I agree, like there's the view that we can buy our way out of this with spending a lot of money on fancy innovations but if we're still seeing people as a problem to be solved, then it doesn't matter what we do we're still not treating people like the glorious, wonderful individual humans that they are. Yeah, we're not treating people as equal citizens. And we're not asking for special treatment for older people. We're just asking for recognition of their human rights, just like any other citizen. So you spoke about the Royal Commission and about the terrible and shocking abuses that came to light during those. And a lot of them were were failings of clinical care. A lot of them were failings of just basic attention and care. And that has generated a lot of work in the space of freedom from. So let's make sure people don't have abuse. Let's make sure we monitor restrictive practices. And that's really important, of course, to strengthen those things. But let's never forget that they're bare minimum, that it's shocking we're talking about them anyway. But it's equally as important to be talking about freedom too, which you also just spoke about. Many of the people I've spoken to almost assume the role of, you know, naughty child when they're talking about being told what to do and or be naughty if I do that. And it almost, it's it's like as soon as they're sucked into that vortex of residential aged care, they assume that. And there are people who are strong enough to sort of really protest and say, I want my rights respected and you don't get to tell me what to do. But equally, there's a lot of people who think, well, that's just the way you have to be if you get support to keep living your life in the, under this roof. And as you said, it's like they almost feel that they have to fight for that. But if they can't, then they just kind of get that learned helplessness, you know, and become compliant. And then they're told that that behaviour is good behaviour. I really feel that while we're focusing on this freedom from abuse and, of course, the freedom to be seen as an individual. The freedom for people just to be themselves and not feel like they have to conform or fight against conformity. There's that middle ground, which is you're okay just because you're human, you know, and you're you, you know, and that's who you get to be here. And you shouldn't have to sacrifice any of those things just because you require support on different levels to continue living your life as a citizen. And I think that's what's happening, especially when people move into residential aged care. And that's thinking about innovation until we get those pieces right, until we understand that these people are equal citizens with with the same human rights as other citizens. We're not going to have innovation that means anything. You could have the most gorgeous art program in one of these places, but if every other aspect of the person's life is about being bossed around, treated like a child, overruled by their own families or or staff for their own good, that deeply embedded paternalism, what does an art program mean? And what does even freedom from those other abuses really mean in terms of people's experience of continuing to live a really important part of their lives, I think, that it's underestimated how important that part of people's lives is. It shouldn't be that that's the bit you dread, as you said earlier. Are you looking for innovative ways for your organisation to deliver more impact? Take our online assessment and receive a customised report in your inbox that highlights exactly what to do next. It takes only five minutes to fill out and it's completely free. Visit impactoconsulting.com.au slash self-assessment. You know, you're talking about innovation in thought 
and what it's not in terms of, you know, innovation isn't just therapies and technologies, but, you know, can we sort of flesh out a bit more exactly what you mean by thought innovation? Because I think that's really exciting. And that's a great place where people can kind of go, oh, all right, well, I might not have the million dollars to spend on the latest technology, but this piece I can hang on to. I think that the thought innovation needs to come from a human rights perspective to say, what is aged care for? At the moment, it's still stuck in that old hospital medical model. It's not like an either or between having the most excellent clinical care and access on an equal basis to any other citizen to the best healthcare professionals and specialists and food that you enjoy eating. So it's not a swap. And I think sometimes people think that it's not. Those things need to be in place, obviously, but the rest of it is about being treated as is and recognized as a decision maker, whether you use words to express your decisions or not. At the moment, I think it might be going backwards a bit since the Royal Commission in terms of especially seeing each citizen who moves in as an individual citizen. It's like there's this sense of a forced marriage with family. Now it's just assumed that everyone gets a seat at the table to talk about people's private lives and their care plans, where it didn't used to be as much like that. But now I've even heard it referred to as co-design. And it's like, wait a minute, we, co- we don't co-design people's relationships and their lives and, and what time they wake up and what they eat. We co-design services and communities and grow together. Do you know what I mean? So they're almost misusing concepts from really good concepts like co-design and using them as a kind of forced marriage. So now, as soon as people move in, they've got a representative who gets a seat at the table for every decision. And that's just wrong. It's counter to human rights and none of us would want it for ourselves. So thought innovation needs to start with, what have we got here? We've got these institutions and they're not working, not just because of the failings we found out in the Royal Commission. They're not working because we shouldn't treat people this way. It's not okay. And it's not just because of abuse. It's this idea that people come in and every area of their life is structured and determined by others. So I think the first step is to say, we can't do this anymore to people. I really feel that's an important step. And then to move on to what's possible now, we've got this underpinning. It's also really recognising when innovators come into the space that 70% of the people who live in residential aged care, the OECD puts it at, have some level of cognitive disability. So if you've set up research methods, focus groups, survey methods, feedback loops of any kind, there needs to be so much innovation and creativity in how do we hear those 70%. Because it's not like it's, oh, how do we accommodate the small percent? You've created a place that 70% of the people who live there have cognitive disabilities and a whole lot of assessments and methods and surveys and co-design action research. All of those methods need to be rethought about in light of those 70%. So we're not just hearing proxy. Yeah, it's one of the things that we talk to a lot of organisations about is designing your co-design or even co-designing your co-design, if that makes sense. Because if you just go out there with a one-size-fits-all type approach where you do have these different groups of people, they're not really able to participate in a meaningful way often if you sort of go like sort of straight out of the box, you know, let's just give this a go. And so I, I totally agree with what you just said, Dan, is that you know, you've really got to think about what is the best way to involve somebody in so that it's comfortable, safe, meaningful for them, as well as it's going to produce you with accurate data so that you can make a difference and, and really understand and meet their needs. You can't just jump headfirst into this stuff. It's not a ticker box exercise. It is, is a really well thought out and planned 
practice because if you don't get that bit right, just ticking that box is not going to necessarily get you better outcomes. It isn't. I mean, I've even toyed with crazy ideas like turning incident forms on their head and, and calling them feedback forms. So if someone's really been trying to get out of the place because they're really unhappy there or someone is really distressed, they sometimes call them behaviours associated with dementia, to actually rethink of them as I'm dissatisfied with the service. Feedback opportunities to think, well, I've got like eight people who live in this particular house or unit and most of them are pretty miserable between eight and 10 in the morning. What are we doing wrong? As opposed to this person's resistive to care, let's give them drugs. You know, we're obviously do, doing mornings awfully. So what kind of patterns are we seeing, not just for our organisation, but what kind of patterns are we seeing in terms of the fact that these people who live here aren't happy with the service at this time of day? So I'm very, very passionate about the idea of basing all of that on human rights. But the first point is recognition to say for people actually need to stop. They need to have the courage to stop and say, we're doing this wrong. We can't do this anymore. And I find that that step takes the most courage and it takes really courageous organisations and really courageous individuals to actually stand up and say that and then to, in their day-to-day -day work and practice, just have that solidarity in calling out those injustices as they see them and as they witness them and experience them in themselves and in colleagues. I think any innovation plonked on top of that that doesn't get to that the foundations of the medical model is never going to make the kind of change that I think is both your vision, which is gorgeous, and the vision of the people I've heard talk on your show. And I'm sure the people listening who are only listening because they want things to be better. How do you not feel alone in that? How can we find like-minded others who actually are prepared to say, we can't just keep plonking new things on top of this old foundation. It's the foundations that need to change. What is aged care? What is its purpose? And the reason I always talk about the Convention on Rights of Persons with Disabilities is because it was developed specifically to address and challenge the medical model. So it's a fantastic instrument to use as a guide to making things better in places like residential aged care. Yeah, I mean, how many people start in a role in aged care and they start going, oh, I don't know if that, that thing is right that we're doing there, you know, dragging someone out of bed to make an appointment or into, you know, a breakfast scenario or lunch scenario, whatever that might be. Probably not lunch, that's a fair sleep in. I, I doubt someone's allowed to have that much of a sleep in in a lot of places. But, you know, dragging these people to somewhere or, you know, they're seeing these things sort of comes back to what you said is that, you know, it, it's culture and after a while you get told, if you, if you do stand up to it, sometimes you get told, well, no, that's just the way we do things. And so then you just start, doing that thing and then next minute you're just part of the system, right? That's really astute, Dan. I definitely have found that in myself. I mean, if there's anyone out there who's worked as a personal carer, you know, your first day doing a buddy shift or your first day on the floor, for me anyway, and for so many people I've spoken to who are still personal carers, there's that first day of, of working and you think, this is wrong. Like, like, am I really doing, is this my job? Am I doing this to people's bodies and working so quickly and kind of herding people like cattle into a lounge room? And you look around for confirmation that other people see this isn't right as well. But when you don't get that, it does become normalized around you. And every, especially people working direct, direct care and support workers. When I talk about a human rights approach with them, and I've now spoken to literally thousands, the strongest reaction I get is, I knew it. 
I knew there was something wrong with what we were doing. I, I knew this. And if anything, it confirms what they knew in their gut when they had those first reactions. So that's another area this is so positive. And that's why the last thing we need on the list anyway is, is staff training to begin with. We need courageous organisations who stop and say, wait a minute, there's a whole lot of things we do before we start victim blaming our staff or ticking the box of what's the problem? How will you fix it? Staff training. But the problem won't be with staff training. It's a problem that happens in that process of people moving in. When you know somebody's family is told, you're going to be part of all this care plan creation and we'll be calling you about everything and you're going to get a say about everything, you can't come back from that. If that's the story you're telling family, you're setting everyone up for failure. So there's a lot of systemic things that need to be worked through in a commitment to human rights and before that, there needs to be courage in saying, we can't treat people like children anymore. We can't boss them around for their own good. We've got to rework out what residential aged care is. You've touched on a really important point because from the family's perspective, it comes from good intent, right? They want to make sure that their loved ones are safe and doing okay and they want to make sure that they're getting the care that they need to to live their best life. You know, you can sort of understand the desire to have the involvement. Where's that balance in that relationship? If anything, the Royal Commission has shown families, it's shown the general public, there's terrible things happening. And so you would think, what? well, family need to get in there and make sure nothing bad's happening to their mum or their dad. But let's unpack what that really means. What are we really saying by that? We're saying we've got a failed system and a failed regulatory system. So we're going to collude with that. We're actually going to turn family into police. We're going to give them a policing role in their family's life who lives there for the last and possibly most important part of their lives. That's the legacy they're leaving. So they're taking family and saying, yes, yes, you've got the right to police this, as opposed to we haven't got it right. So it's really doing two things. It's using a hammer to say, we'll just let make family involved in everything to make sure no abuse is happening. And therefore, we're turning family into police. And we're just going to ride completely roughshod over the right to autonomy and the right to make choices and the right to dignity, which is the whole purpose of human rights. So we're just going to abandon that because we want to avoid abuse. So I think that's deeply, deeply problematic. And I think that, as we mentioned earlier, that co-design approach that's being actually turned into working on care plans with older people. So those type of sentiments and the misuse of terms like open disclosure. Everybody's using the open disclosure now. And I did a resident focus group where she'd slipped off her bed on a cushion and it was just that the carer came in and saw her. She slipped on the cushion on the ground and she was perfectly fine. And the carer went, oh, she's had a fall. I'll have to call your daughter. The woman said, no, please don't. I'm absolutely fine. Please don't call my daughter. And the staff member said, I have to because of open disclosure. So it's like, wait a minute, where does privacy and open disclosure meet? So what's happening now is a kind of forced marriage. When people move into residential aged care, they lose the recognition of them as an individual decision maker with privacy, the right to privacy, well, they have to give it up when they move in. And I think that that's absolutely not okay. That forced marriage approach to supported decision making isn't okay. And I think 
it's a knee-jerk reaction and I think Australia will come back from that. I don't think you need to, to sacrifice self-determination in order to, to secure not being abused. If you worked in the sector, what came out of the Royal Commission, you know, most of it was not a shock. You know, for the public, potentially more so a shock, but for most people, they kind of knew a lot of this stuff was sort of happening, right? But So it seems like it's kind of cultural, a lot of this stuff. And you know, you're talking a bit about thought leadership. Is that right, what I just said? Or, and how does it change? I worry a lot about putting it back to culture. And the reason I worry about that is because I've worked on culture for 10 years. And for 15 years, there's been the culture change, international culture change exchange. And culture change in aged care has been the buzzword for the last 10 years. And the problem with culture change initiatives is that First and foremost, there's some systemic, non-negotiable, operational and policy-related shifts that need to happen. As soon as you put it on culture, you put it on people or you call it part of broader ageism and then give up. And as I said, I genuinely believe that, yes, broader ageism has an impact on residential aged care, but that residential aged care is its own vortex. So if you just focus on culture, changing hearts and minds and those sorts of things, you won't get anywhere because they're in a system that is built, it's woven throughout the system, this medical model and paternalism. And it means that the people at the very top aren't doing what they need to do. So they send all these people to these expensive workshops and conferences about culture change. When the people going there get it, they know that the culture should change, but they're completely in the vortex, unable to make it happen because of some basic systemic operational shifts that need to change and policies that need to change to just, again, on the most basic level, align with international human rights law. That's why I've moved away from culture change and moved to human rights and not just human rights as a loose kind of term because Anything could be pulled under a human rights banner. You know, it'd have to be pretty creepy if it didn't, you know, you can have your model of care or whatever. We're doing human rights, but we need to be drawing on specific treaties consistently, like the Convention on Rights of Persons with Disabilities. It's a tried and tested framework that we can measure ourselves by and hold ourselves accountable to. It's not just using human rights-y language occasionally, <laughs> you know, which I'm, I'm, you know, I'm concerned can happen and I've noticed is sneaking into the vernacular. Let's just change that word for human rights and it looks like my model is human rights. And I think we need to have more integrity and understand that the change needed is foundational and that the front runners of that will be the people who now, right now, draw that line in the sand and say, that's the old way. We're not judging each other or it. But here's the line in the sand where we say we can't do that anymore. This is the new way and it's founded on human rights. You talk about the system uh, and that needing to change, but also that sort of thought innovation. Is there legal things that are in the way that need to be changed to be able to move to our new model of care? Another great question. She's fantastic. I think in relation to the Convention on Rights of Persons with Disabilities, and I'll point to Article 12, which really covers equal recognition before the law. I think the law is behind on implementing Article 12 internationally. And I think service providers, that shouldn't stop them from leading the way. 
and the law can catch up. At the moment, if your organisation says, this is who we are, we do human rights, this is how we deal, our priority is self-determination for the citizens who move in here, the older citizens, that is our focus. The way we deal with any kind of decision-making or legal powers is, is going to be focused on interpreting what this citizen currently expresses as their will and preference now. Not what someone says is good for mum, not what someone says my mum would have never done that. It's this citizen now in front of us and we're going to honour verbal and non-verbal expressions. We're not going to discriminate around communicative styles, that we are going to honour that. And then people get a choice. They get a chance to say, well, that's not for me. I'm going to go somewhere else that lets me be in control of my mum. And that's fair warning. But I would argue that the people who do after being given information, choose somewhere else. It's probably better for your staff that they do because you're going to burn people out who really deep down have a strong moral calling to to protect the, and uphold the human rights of people. And when that's overruled, we talk about attracting staff and, and what, what can we do to get staff? Well, we can stop creating these moral conflicts where they know something's wrong, where they actually recognise that as an individual, that person is an individual citizen and they want to uphold their rights in really nuanced ways, but then that's overruled by an organisation that you can say they're risk adverse or following regulation, but that's not true either because you've got people who are upholding human rights who are still passing accreditation. So then you get to the nuances between one quality team and one organisation in Australia says, we can't do this and we have to do this and we have to tell family everything. And the other organisation have really clearly stated they're a human rights one and we always go to the citizen resident first. We ask if they want us to share information and both are passing accreditation. So I'm not buying it. Awesome. Dan, thanks so much for sharing all of that. It was so great to hear your passion and your you know, experiences from you know, working in, in the sector for the, the time that you have. And I think the thing that I took out of this conversation is that there's a lot of meaningful change that can be made just through thinking differently and changing how we work and how we interact with people as a starting point. There are some great technological advancements that are happening in this space to make things better and they are important, but there's a lot of stuff we can do in terms of our design of our services the way that we're running organisations, the way that we're interacting with families and the way that we just even think about the people that are in residential aged care. So is that a fair summary, Dan? Yeah, I think the cultural piece is important and everybody can make a difference themselves, but it's also a call for organisations at higher levels to do what they to do the right thing and to change their policies and systems so that across every step of the client journey so that when they move in they're not already behind the eight ball in terms of how they perceive their human rights as protected and the role their family think they can play and the role that staff think they have in that kind of best interests thinking yeah that's awesome well thanks so much for taking some time out of your busy day to share that with us dan it was great to have you on the, the podcast and yeah we're really hoping that that's given everybody that's listened in just some you know food for thought a different way of looking at things. And if you have been working in this space and you've agreed with some of the stuff that Dan sort of shared on here, you know, what, what can you do from your position of power to be able to try and make this you know, world better for the people living in residential aged care? So like I said, Dan, really great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Innovate for Impact podcast. Any links to what we spoke about today will be posted in the show notes. 
If you'd like to know more about social innovation, visit our website where we have a heap of tools to help you on your way. Visit impactoconsulting.com.au. Thanks for listening. Now go out there and make an impact.